Welcome to Mike's Notes, episode 21. Today, three lessons from the world of advertising. Yes, that's right. Today we are going to jump into the world of advertising. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. That clip from the 1980 movie Airplane was in the CBC podcast Under the Influence with Terry O'Reilly. And elsewhere in that episode, O'Reilly talks about the different ways that parody in advertising has had effects, whether uh, immediate effects or long-run effects. And overall, the episode is really good. And the podcast on the whole is really good. Terry O'Reilly and his staff break down different advertising ideas and tell the history behind them, and they find incredible stories. So if you really like podcasts and being surprised, if you like Paul Harvey, or if you're involved in marketing or advertising in any way, definitely check out this podcast. For now, though, we're going to look at three things that I took notes on from O'Reilly's podcast. One... When you answer to people, it changes what you can do. Two, gray areas exist all around us. Sometimes you need to push into them, and sometimes you shouldn't. Number three, deep understanding is hugely helpful, and comedy is a method to get to deep understanding. Ready? One. When you have stakeholders or when you have people to answer to, it affects the way that you can act. Here is Terry O'Reilly talking about when Mad Magazine realized this idea. Then, in issue number 21, it decided to spoof its own advertisers, which it did on its cover. Mad's advertisers were not happy. But most of the magazine's revenues were from newsstand sales, so founding publisher William M. Gaines didn't really care. That's when he decided to drop advertising altogether. His rationale? Mad could spoof everyone if it was beholden to no one. I really like the way O'Reilly puts that, beholden to no one. So Mad Magazine had to not do their best work because they had to answer to their advertisers. This reminded me of the idea of FU money, which is something that Nassim Taleb writes about in The Black Swan. Quote, That night, on October 19, 1987, I slept for 12 hours straight. It was hard to tell my friends, all hurt in some manner by the crash, about this feeling of vindication. Bonuses at the time were a fraction of what they are today, but if my employer... First, Boston, and the financial system survived until year-end, I would get the equivalent of a fellowship. This is sometimes called F.U. money, which, in spite of its coarseness, means it allows you to act like a Victorian gentleman, free from slavery. It's a psychological buffer. The capital is not so large as to make you spoiled rich, but large enough to give you the freedom to choose a new occupation without excessive consideration of the financial rewards. It shields you from prostituting your mind and frees you from outside authority, any outside authority. Other financiers have spoken about this as well. Here is Warren Buffett from the 2016 Berkshire Hathaway meeting. The euro goes down. 
it offsets interest expense. Uh, it's a technicality to some extent because we have lots of assets in Europe <clears throat> and they're expressed in euros when they go up, it does not go through the income account, it goes directly to other comprehensive income. So I just, that figure which looks a little unusual, uh, that's the reason for it. And we always urge you to pay no attention to the figures below operating earnings. That, uh, uh, they, uh, they will bounce around from quarter to quarter and we make no attempt to manage earnings in any way uh, to have them be smoother. We could do that very easily, but it'd be ridiculous. We make investment decisions <clears throat> solely on the basis of what we think the best investment decision is, <clears throat> not on the basis of how it'll affect uh, earnings in any quarter or in any year. That part of the Berkshire Hathaway meeting, which is available on YouTube and is really good, Buffett is talking about earnings in the euro, he's talking about railroads, he's talking about other companies they've added to the Berkshire Hathaway system, and the big point is that him and Charlie Munger don't have to fudge the numbers in any way. They don't have to time things because they don't have any stakeholders, and that's really valuable. You get a more authentic picture. Another person who has embraced this idea of not having stakeholders to answer to is Louis C.K. This is what he said about his recent TV project, Horace and Pete. Quote, I wanted to play around here with my own money because the things I was doing were very extreme. Everything I did was counterintuitive. I didn't want to convince anyone of anything or risk their money when I knew I was taking a deep risk. End quote. So what Louis found out was that if he financed everything, there was a bigger risk, but he didn't have to talk to people about where and what commercials to put in. He didn't have to negotiate with actors. All he had to do was get started filming the thing, and it ended up going really quickly. People that were involved in the TV show, like Jessica Lange and Alan Alda, said that making Horace and Pete was one of the best experiences of their career, probably because there weren't many stakeholders, so there weren't many demands that they had to answer to. If you can get fewer people involved who are going to make demands of something, the thing you make often can be a better version. Two. Sometimes we need to push into the gray areas of what's allowed and what isn't allowed. In Sophia Amoruso's podcast with Tim Ferriss, she talks about creating her store on eBay, and sometimes she put in product links or links to outside websites that were forbidden by eBay's official rules, but they were broken by a lot of the sellers on eBay. And eventually, that was a loophole that got closed and led Amoruso off of the eBay platform, where she had been selling a lot of her clothes. This turned out to be a blessing for her because she had outgrown the site and she needed to move. And so that was ultimately the catalyst. But a lot of other businesses push into the gray areas and operate without having all of their T's crossed and I's dotted. Paul Graham wrote this, quote, There is more to setting up a company than incorporating it. Of course, insurance, business, license, unemployment, compensation, various things with the IRS. I'm not even sure what the list is because we uh, skipped all that. When we got real funding near the end of 1996, we hired a great CFO who fixed everything retroactively. It turns out that no one comes and arrests you if you don't do everything you're supposed to do when starting a company. And a good thing, too, or a lot of startups 
would never get started, end quote. So Graham is advocating also that you don't need to have everything done. You can push into the gray area of legal operation, at least for a little while. Even Jack Bogle did this when he was interviewed by Barry Ritholtz on the Masters in Business podcast. He recalled how he got his index fund started. And Bogle was not allowed by his parent company to create an actively managed fund. And Bogle recalls being a little surprised when they said that his index fund wasn't an actively managed fund and he could go on ahead with that. And that's proved to be a huge invention in the financial industry. Brian Grazer wrote, Another person who pushed into the gray areas is film producer Brian Grazer, who writes this in his book, A Curious Mind. Quote, One day Brandon Tarkinoff was walking by. He was the president of NBC Television in the process of reviving the network with shows like Hill Street Blues and Cheers and Miami Vice. At 32, he was already one of the most powerful people in show business. Hey, Brandon, I yelled, up here. He looked up at me and smiled. Wow, he said, you must be in charge of the world from up there. A few minutes later, my phone rang. It was my boss, Gary Nardino, the head of TV at Paramount. Brian, what the fuck do you think you're doing? Screaming out your window at the president of NBC. I'm just connecting, I said. We're just having fun. I don't think we're having that much fun, Nardino said. Cut it out, end quote. That comes from a section of Grazer's book where he had sort of finagled into an office that was open at the executive level. He just sort of asked if he could have it, and they said yes. And so he's yelling at people as they go by, and Grazer's always trying to make these kind of connections, and that really helped his career. Sometimes, though, we can push into gray areas too far, and that can lead us to problems. In this clip from the Under the Influence podcast, O'Reilly recalls what happened to National Lampoon magazine. The Lampoon continued to push the envelope, especially with its outrageous covers. In one issue, it ran a cover with a photo of a baby in a blender. The Christian Coalition took exception to the magazine in general, and the cover in particular, and wrote to all the Lampoon's advertisers threatening a boycott. The companies pulled their advertising. That was the beginning of the end for the National Lampoon. As your mother once said, sometimes you can go too far. And that's the case for National Lampoon. Three. Our final lesson from this episode is the idea of understanding deeply. And comedy is a really nice area to look at something. Because when something is funny, it means that you understand it deeply. Here's Terry O'Reilly talking about what Mad Magazine did really well. The second rule for a successful parody ad is that it must trick viewers at first glance into thinking they're looking at a real ad. So Mad Magazine was faithful to the original ads in layout, photography, and typeface. Mad was so exacting, it would occasionally get letters from angry parents scolding the magazine for accepting tobacco advertising when so many of its readers were children. The editor would write back, pointing out that tobacco ads were scathing parodies, and that the joy of reading Mad Magazine was actually reading the magazine. Mad Magazine demonstrated a deep understanding in the way they recreated the ads. They chose the same typeface, the same color scheme. They really knew the details, and that's part of the reason that it was funny. 
A deep understanding is really going to help with a lot of things. Phil Knight credits part of Nike's success with him seeing the mistakes other people made. Knight writes in his book, Shoe Dog, quote, While auditing these companies, digging into their guts, taking them apart, and putting them back together, I was also learning how they survived or didn't, end quote. Knight was an accountant for part of his time as a shoe importer, and on the side, he did the shoe business on nights and weekends, and during the day, he went to his accounting job. And at that accounting job, as he was digging into the details, he was seeing the mistakes that companies made. He had a deep understanding of what it took to run a business. In David McCullough's book about Theodore Roosevelt, Mornings on Horseback, he writes about how Roosevelt was a successful writer, what he had to do to learn about naval warfare. McCullough wrote, quote, Theodore had forced himself to master every nuance and technical term of seamanship. Theodore, who never particularly cared for sailing, who disliked long sea voyages, Theodore had plowed through everything in print on his subject, tracked down original documents to amass volumes of statistics on fighting, ships, armaments, crews, end quote. So even though Roosevelt wasn't all that interested in this idea of the idea of naval warfare. He still dove into the details because he knew that's where he would get a deep understanding of it. On the TV show Shark Tank, Kevin O'Leary says that one way to succeed is to articulate your pitch in 90 seconds or less. The way to do this is to figure out the basics of things. Elon Musk said, quote, Physics is a good framework for thinking. Boil things down to their fundamental truths and reason up from there. End quote. So if we can start with the little things, if we look at the big Lego castle and figure out how many gray 2x2 two two blocks we need, that's one way to start thinking about things. Another technique for this is to use comedy. This is our example from Mad Magazine about how they understood something. And if you get that deep understanding, if you know enough of something to make fun of it and that people find funny, then you're on to something. When Jason Zwag wrote The Devil's Financial Dictionary, he said, quote, The ability to define a term in such a way to be cynical or funny is a measure of your own skepticism. Zwag could only write that book because he had this deep understanding of what the different financial terms really meant. Comedian B.J. Novak said, quote, You really learn something when you parody it, end quote. I don't have any clips from it, but when Tim Ferriss was on Jamie Foxx's radio program, they talked a lot about political correctness and jokes. And the big idea from that was that you had to understand people. You had to have a good knowledge of what a group of people holds sacred to be able to make fun of it and to get people to laugh. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes. The three things we touched on today is, one, if you have stakeholders, people to answer to, your actions and decisions are going to be influenced by them for better or worse. Two, Gray areas exist all around us. Sometimes you need to push into them, and sometimes you need to pull back. Three, deep understanding is hugely helpful. If you have a deep understanding of something, you can make a joke about it and you can make people laugh. If you don't, you probably don't have a deep understanding. Thanks for listening to episode 21 of Mike's Notes. That's very nice. Thank you very much. Now, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. All right, then, leave and take your book with you.